Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Happy New Year and may 2022 bring you peace, happiness, prosperity and lots of many good things. In a wee moment I will present some of the highlights from our weekly episodes of the past year. Every episode was interesting. I hope in their own way, but I had to whittle the list down to 10, and that was tough. So it ended up a little like a darts game, and there is a certain randomness about these great picks. From my interview with one of the wealthiest men in America, John Katsimatidis, to the incredible stories told by an American exorcist, to the entertaining but deeply philosophical my interview with Raymond Arroyo of Fox News and EWTN. Sure, it's a busy time in the Byrne household in New Jersey and wherever we celebrate in this area, in New York or Connecticut or much further afield. The big tradition is to watch the ball drop on Times Square, which we did as we rang in the new year. And I managed to accomplish this with my full faculties and eyes open with my phone going bing and bong with New Year messages from family and friends all over. It was a lot of fun. MSN.com reminds us that as the clock struck midnight around the world, many people took to the streets to ring in the new year by, get this, banging pots and pans. This tradition is carried out across the world from the UK to Australia, although it is widely believed the tradition originated in my native Ireland. The action is said to ward off evil spirits and negativity, paving the way for a happy and positive year ahead. Well, here in the Garden State of New Jersey, in the great United States of America, Our family tradition was and is to turn the lights on and off multiple times with an adult beverage in one hand and a mince pie in the other. That's what we do each year as we ring in the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. And this one I love. And thanks again to MSN.com. Ollyang Zine, a poem by Scotland's most famous bard, Robert Burns, B-U-R-N-S, no relation of this burn, B-Y-R-N-E, has become the soundtrack for New Year around the world. At every Scottish Cayley or Hogmanay party, people gather in a circle to link arms and belt out the lyrics after the clock strikes 12. Stay tuned for our review of some of the highlights from our episodes in the past 12 months. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. 
To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. It certainly is grand to have you all back at the beginning of a beautiful and wonderful new year, 2022. Gosh, time does fly. Happy New Year. My blessings to you all. Well, we interviewed and met some very fascinating and one-of-a-kind guests last year. And we're going to rewind the clock a wee bit and play some excerpts from some memorable episodes starting with John Katsimiditis, the New York billionaire and supermarket mogul, says the city and nation are under attack. John is frank and open about his own personal wealth as well. John, you're welcome to my show. How are you doing? I am doing well, and uh, we all survived the the problems of the last two years, and uh, we are, are praying for America because America I would say America is under attack in many, many directions. And, and uh, I think we're being tested to see if we survive to America's 300th year in 2076. Well, we know the usual suspects, but could you identify them for us? Who is attacking America? I think we're being attacked by various uh, uh, people in, in the world, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, uh, whether... Everybody, uh, my, my belief is that the people we have in Washington are not as smart as we'd like them to be, and our foreign competition is a little bit smarter, and they can zig and they can zag, and they're taking advantage of us in many, many ways. You're an extremely successful man. You're a public figure. You're one of the world's wealthiest people, of course. How does that make you feel? Do you feel good about being a, a wealthy person? Does it ever enter your head that you came to this country with nothing? And it, never, it never enters my head. I go to work every day. I work hard every day. I work seven days a week. Maybe I used to lug uh, cases of soda from the basements up to the store. What would you do if you were born with a pretty fat silver spoon in your mouth and inherited some of your family's vast fortune, assuming your family had a vast fortune? For Chuck Collins, the answer was simple. He gave it away. Can you give us an idea how much money you left on the table? Well, maybe it was, uh, it was about a half a million dollars in 1985 or so. So, you know, if it had been just left in the stock market, I think there'd be, you know, six, seven million dollars just, uh, or if just if I just parked it in a bank, maybe it'd be two million dollars or whatever. So, you know, not a, not a great Gilded Age fortune, but for, you know, if you, it's not the kind of money I probably would have been able to save based on my own efforts. Yeah. And I, I remember my father and who, uh, God bless him, still alive, you know, and, and is very patient and supportive of me. He, he said, you know, you don't have any idea what you're doing. You know, you're in your mid twenties, you don't have any family responsibilities, you know, this money could come in handy. What if you have a child has a special need or what if your spouse gets ill, you're going to wish you had that money to take care of. But my kind of response was, well, I'd be in the same boat as 99% of the people I know I'd have to I'd have to get help, you know, from my community, my congregation, you know. I want to have a stake in building a society where you don't have to have a wall of money just to have basic security. So that was, you know, I was very affected by the Catholic worker movement, the 
Dorothy Day. And you know, I was in, in my early 20s, you know, just saw the corrupting nature of concentrated wealth and power and the idolatry of money and all that. So that was kind of my mindset at the time, if you will. Yeah, 60s, 70s, 80s. Well, you could have taken that money and set up your own charity or given, well, you did ultimately take that money and you gave it away to needy causes. That's right. So I, I did uh, I did give it to several foundations and those foundations then in turn gave it away. Yeah. The, the, and the money still continues to work. It's just, it's not in my name. And I, I had, you know, at some point somebody said, well, you could, you could be a philanthropist. You could give this money away. You could create a foundation. So, well, I think that's, you know, that's meaningful work, useful work, but it wasn't really what I felt called to do. Dick Beauvais is the famed bank industry analyst at Odeon Capital Group, who has one of the deepest understandings of what is happening in our global economy. I had him back to talk about the weird stuff going on at the US Federal Reserve and our soaring rate of inflation. Well, basically, uh, you know, I think it's become a very complex subject because uh, the Federal Reserve, in my view, no longer knows what the money supply of the United States is. And it's not because uh, they're doing anything incorrect or inappropriate. It's because there are so many instruments which can be used as money uh, that the Federal Reserve cannot, if you will, calculate uh, each one uh, accurately. And because it can't calculate them accurately, it simply dumps them and doesn't make them part of the money supply any longer. And therefore, uh, even though these instruments still exist, and even though these instruments are part of the money supply, they're just not being recorded. And that creates an inappropriate view of, of what money is and what the growth in money is uh, at any given point in time. Plus, you know, it creates a, a secondary problem, which is if you don't know what money is, how do you how do you establish monetary policy? What, what do you do to create monetary policy if you don't know what the thing you're attempting to, uh, you know, handle is, in a, is, is a number that you can't figure out, uh, you know, correctly? So, so it's, it's, it's really something. I mean, the bottom line for me is that money supply is still growing at an inappropriately rapid rate, and uh, that ultimately will be uh, even more inflationary than has been the case in the last couple of months. Okay, so let's pick up on something you mentioned. Uh, it's not doesn't have a handle on the money supply, and you mentioned some instruments that may not calculate into that. What are some of those? Okay, basically, um, if we go back to 1970, when monetarism was, I like to say, riding the rails, everybody believed in it. The Federal Reserve was, you know, reacting to it. And, you know, everybody on Thursday afternoons would, would gather around you know, whatever machine they have in the office to see what the latest money supply number was. When they were doing that, we had something called M1A, M1B, M2, M3, MZM, L, uh, and each one of those, you know, if you will, names were related to a, a group of different products. For example, M1A was, you know, currency. Well, M10 is simply currency. M1A, you start to bring in certain bank deposits. Uh, M1, if we go all the way out to L, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, money and money market funds. We're looking at, you know, the treasuries. We're looking at commercial paper, all of which is used for transactions. The Fed cannot figure out what the size of 
any of these other, if you will, instruments are, and therefore they've cut the whole thing back to simply M1 and M2. And they, they've redefined what M1 is. M1, you know, historically used to be transaction deposits. It was money you can get your hands on immediately and go to the store and buy something, whether it's a currency, which is in circulation, or your, your demand deposits at the bank, your checking account, your demand deposits at the bank. The Fed has now decided that your um, savings deposits and your uh, what they call other checkable deposits are transaction deposits. Now, it doesn't matter what that is, but the bottom line, what it means is that whereas M1 historically was about 25 to 30% of M2, today M1 is about 95% of M2. Plus, the government has come along and said the banks don't have to have reserves against M1 any longer. So it's a, it's a, in my view, it's a free-for-all. You know, I think they're just simply printing and printing and printing, which I think is ultimately going to be very problematic. Well, you mentioned cryptocurrency. Is that a part of it, a big part of it? In terms of their, so. they've, they've left that out of the balance sheet, it seems. Yes, they have left it. That's, they've left it off the balance sheet just the same way as they've left off uh, a um, CD, which is over $100,000. I mean, if you, if in, in, in same, same game. You know, if you have a, mon- a lot of money in the bank and you buy a CD, uh, which is over 100000 it's no longer considered to be part of the money supply when obviously it is. If you take that money and buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple or wh- whatever one, you know, you happen to like, same deal, you know. The money comes out of the banking system, goes into the cryptocurrency, and it's no longer part of the money supply of the United States, according to the way it's calculated. It is, it is of course, part of the money supply of the United States, and it is, of course, you know, money which is used for affecting transactions. But you know, the, the difficulty we have is you just can't take things out of the money supply and say it's not money supply because it goes into some sort of uh, you know category you can't qualify. Let's assume you have uh, you know a couple of accounts, uh, twenty five thousand apiece, sitting in a retail money market fund. Well, that's part of the money supply. Let's assume you aggregate those. Let's say there's three twenty five thousand dollar deposits in this uh, money market mutual fund. You aggregate them into one, which is seventy five thousand. It's no longer part of the money supply. You can't do that. <laughs> I mean, we're doing it, but in, in reality, in the real world, I don't think you can do it. And therefore, I don't think that you know the, the, the monetary policy of the country is being based upon sound premises or a sound understanding of what, in fact, money is. Well, it, it might partly explain why the Fed is trying to get into the cryptocurrency business, right? Aren't they doing research and developing something there so that maybe the idea is to at least have a better handle on the statistical part of this. Well, I, th- I think you're exactly correct. You know, that they're definitely doing a lot of work. I think that uh, the Boston Federal Reserve and uh, MIT have created a joint effort. And in that joint effort, they're attempting to determine how to create a cryptocurrency, which is fiat-based. Mm. Fiat-based means it's run by the Fed, obviously. And, and they got to move faster because China has already done it. In other words, about a month ago, the Chinese released a white paper. And in that white paper, they defined what the Chinese 
cryptocurrency that what the Chinese yuan would look like uh, in, in the new system. Not only did they do that, but they kicked, you know, Bitcoin out of the country. They kicked the miners out of the country. <laughs> they said there's only going to be one cryptocurrency in China, and that's going to be, you know, the yuan. And, and the companies that operate in China are going to have to use that cryptocurrency in terms of affecting transactions. So, you know, there's no question about, in, in my view, there's no question about the fact that cryptocurrencies are at some point going to be the dominant form of money in the world. But we, we don't have the dollar up there yet. And the mm. Chinese have their currency up there already. And they're already, uh, if you will, pressuring, if you will, their companies to make use of it uh, and, and individuals to make use of it. So it's, 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 it's a major race. We, you know, this whole thing about money, you, people are discounting it and, and saying it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, it, it's not a predictor of anything, but uh, it, it does mean something. It means a lot to the people who have it and those who don't. And it means a lot in terms of affecting transactions. And it means a lot in terms of during, uh, determining what pricing is uh, in, in the United States. I mean, I'd like to use a simple example, and I apologize, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, one day, yeah, I went into a grocery store when I was 17 with my father, and basically, uh, you know, we bought a loaf of bread. And the loaf of bread, you know, cost something around 20 cents, and my father got really upset over that, because when he was 17, a loaf of bread cost two cents. So think about it. When he's 17, a loaf of bread costs two cents. When I'm 17, it costs 20 cents. When my children were 17, it cost a buck. When my grandchildren, who are now 17, it costs two bucks. That's what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the fact that if you were, if you were gauging wealth in loaves of bread or whatever other commodity, you would see that there is something wrong with a monetary system which keeps expanding and expanding, but doesn't buy more and more units of whatever the product is you're attempting to, to garner. When, you know, my father bought his house for $3,000 in the middle of World War II. He sold it for $10,000. At the end of World War II, he thought that was a killing, right? He tripled his money. That house today, which is exactly the same house, exactly the same size, sitting in the same street in Medford, Massachusetts, is now worth $650,000. Did you, did you hold on to the family homestead? Oh, he sold it. He sold it for $10,000. And if he was right. today, he'd be kicking himself all around the block. Right, exactly. We, we've spoken about this on a previous show about the impact of inflation, and you said several months ago that we could be we would be headed into 1970s-style inflation at the rate the Fed was printing money. Do you still hold to that? Has it gotten worse? Because what I'm listening to here sounds like, yeah, maybe we're in a whole lot of deep trouble now. Yeah, I, th I, I do hold to it still, still because um, not only do we not know what the money supply is, but the Federal Reserve does not control the money supply any longer. And I'll give you two examples, one of which is against... Michael Churchward, a celebrity mega yacht captain sent to notorious prisons for a crime he never committed after docking in Turkey, discussed his book God Waits Outside on his harrowing ordeal. 
Michael, welcome to the show. You're in sunny Florida today. What's it like there? I'm up here in the Northeast near New York City, and you know all about New York City, but the COVID and shutdowns, crazy place. We're warm. My beach out front here, I'm looking at the water now, is uh, packed with spring breakers. It, it's, <laughs> okay. it's about 80 degrees and beautiful. Well, you like to be near the water because your career and life has been surrounded by water. And we're going to get into that in a moment because you have a remarkable story. You've lived many stories in one life and you've had adventures and, in fact, pain and hardship that none of us may experience, most of it emotional, I would think. But I'm going to start by reading this and you can pick it up from here. You were a man imprisoned unjustly, caught between two governments and several countries and several different cultures. You, in a sense, were abandoned by your own government, the U.S. government. Now, this sounds like a Tom Clancy or Dan Silva novel, yet this is your true life story of your sailing captain experience Michael Churchward, it's amazing. You are also a renowned world yachting captain who broke several world records during your career. But we're not going to focus on that. We're going to talk about what happened and how you ended up in a prison in Turkey. My career was that of an international large mega yacht captain uh, sailing around the world on this particular where the, the story pertains to, we were cruising the Greek islands and the, the southwest Turkish coast, which I was very, very familiar with, having lived over there and sailed over there many years previously. And where the story really starts is we had pulled into a small Turkish port of Kushadas. They were familiar with me. We were dropping guests off and getting ready to pick up another group of family and guests of the ownership in, in, uh, in about four or five days. And they summoned me they sent a Turkish officer to inform me they would like me to come down to the port police office, which was very unusual. They knew me. It was highly unusual for me to leave the ship. Anyway, I, I did so. To speed things up, I was soon detained, arrested, and charged with something that they would not tell us what it was. My name had come up on Interpol. Uh, through passport checks, very standard. And I'd already been through many, many <laughs> passport checks, you know, up to this point. They detained me, arrested me. I went through, went, was sent to a tribunal in the town, a uh, big judge setting up high and stamping papers and this repeating Cirque prison, Cirque prison. The next thing I know, I was thrown into the back of a, a, a small military van and driven inland to a military prison called Cirque. And that's really where the Odyssey started. Um, having said that, uh, then I, was in, I got caught in their prison system for something I didn't even know what I was charged with. Either did my family and my girlfriend, Stephanie at the time, who was the chef on board, uh, had been together many years. She got off the ship and stayed trying to find out what had happened. They wouldn't talk to her. Very, very scary. The first prison was Cirque, a Turkish military prison. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. 
Well, I hope you're all doing well out there. And that takes on a bit more meaning with my interview in this episode with Monsignor Stephen J. Rossetti, who will talk to us frankly about his work as an exorcist and his new book, Diary of an American Exorcist. Now, to give you some flavour, here's a wee bit from his diary entries. After a few minutes of praying, the demons manifested. They were wagging a finger at me and shaking the Energumen's head. Energumen's is the word for the possessed. I had been commanding the demons to leave and the response was pretty clear. No. Then came a mocking, evil smile over the person's face. If there was any doubt that the woman was possessed, it was gone. The look conveyed incredible arrogance and a complete disdain. There was no kindness, no mercy, no sensitivity, just contempt. I felt ridiculed and slimed. Well, that's from Monsignor Stephen J. Rossetti's new book, Diary of an American Exorcist, and we'll catch up with him in a wee moment. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. When we do an exorcism, uh, Satan will, or one of his minions usually, will speak through the person's voice. And that's how we know the person's possessed. A a new voice comes out, a new presence comes out. It is incredibly evil. He looks at you and and you look in the eyes and and you can tell if they could, they would kill you. I'm exaggerating nothing. This is basically my my personal diary of things that happen. I don't need to exaggerate because the truth is too bizarre. I know many of you were deeply impressed, as I was, by Father Matthew Schneider, who went public with his autistic diagnosis on World Autism Awareness Day, and he has never looked back. He now has a huge following on social media. Going back to your autism, you had this T-shirt made up. Yes. I remember, which I thought was very creative, right? Can you tell us about that? So when I was going to, when I was going to go public and when I thought about it and I was praying about it, I said, you know what, I, you know, I need, I made a shirt that just said autistic Catholic and it had kind of uh, the, one of the symbols for autism, which is kind of the infinity symbol, but with a, a, a kind of a, a gradient rainbows around it not and, and things then Catholic with the papal flag behind it, you know, and I was just thinking like that something like that would be very clearly expressive of you know, being both autistic and Catholic in that sense. And so I have it, if you go on Redbubble and you search it, it's available. Anybody can buy a copy of it. Um, you know, I, I got a copy myself in black so I could wear it over top with the collar still coming out through the, through there. And there's more on faith and the hereafter and the mystical and God. Dr. Jared Fershuren, a human geneticist and a very busy author, laid out his case for me for God's existence. For many centuries, almost everyone in the Western world knew and believed that God exists. Belief in God was the norm. But nowadays, unbelief has become the norm. That is what our culture has done to us, as we mentioned earlier, but also what science has done to us, because scientists very often consider themselves final authorities in everything. And that is a a big misunderstanding. They are not authorities in everything. Science cannot cover everything. 
for everything that is not material is not a scientific issue. So how can we prove that God exists? You, you said already that we cannot use a microscope to find the square root of number four. That is not possible. We have to uh, face the fact that uh, we need something else. If we want a proof, don't expect science to prove it. And as I explain in my book, science can basically not prove anything in a strict sense. It can only make things reasonable, beyond reasonable doubt. You were just listening to part of my interview with Dr. Gerard Fersheren. He is a scientist, writer, speaker, and consultant at the interface of science, philosophy, and religion. He is a human geneticist, and he's my guest coming up. This was another special interview for me last year. It was inspiring and a privilege to interview Jarvis Rockwell, son of the late American artist, and S.T. Haggerty, author on the backstories of Norman's beloved models. Here's Jarvis and then Stephen. The head process he went through. First, he did a he did a sketch on a piece of typewriter, a pattern typewriter paper. Then he tried to figure out uh, who he was going to use in it, and and uh, then he'd have Gene Pelham come over and do and do photographs. Then he take the photographs and put them in a belloptican, which blew the photographs up 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 on on a uh, on a piece of architect's detail paper. And he would and he would trace around where the photographs would be on on this on this paper. And then when we got those all done, then he would take the the uh, the piece of architect architect detail paper, which on a, was on a drawing board, and take it into the put it on his on his uh, easel. And then he would do a very careful charcoal drawing of the whole of the whole thing. And then he would photograph that, and he would have that photographed. And then he would then he would blow that up on the canvas in in the and and uh, and trace that on. And then he would take that in and, and then and then call what? Call me Norman because okay, okay, okay. he told everybody whether they were little kids oh, yeah, yeah. or adults. They'd say, "Hi, Mr. Rockwell," and he'd say, "Call me Norman." <laughs> to everybody. So, in other uh, words, he was a very down-to-earth individual. Dr. Anna Lemke, author of *Dopamine Nation*, looks at ancient wisdom and new scientific research for treatment of addictions in a digital, self-indulgent world, drowning our brains. In dopamine. I'll never forget when I, a colleague of mine, uh, an economist who studies uh, the behavioral economics of religion, uh, said that he'll never forget um, seeing a friend of his very addicted to heroin bowed down on his knees, uh, you know, shooting up and how he was reminded in that moment how visually um, he, he looked as if he was a person in prayer or in worship. And I, that image will always stay with me. It's kind of haunting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and sad, sad and distressing. Yeah. And there's so much sadness and distress associated with addiction. And it's great that you're my guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, a psychiatrist and professor at Stanford University and author of the new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. How did we get to this point today? You talk about the prosperity in the West, the rise of digital media, the rise of pleasure seeking, and uh, we're in a crazy place, it seems. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the most significant factors is just the incredible technological innovation, uh, you know, beginning 200, 250 years ago with the Industrial Revolution, 
which has allowed for a number of different developments. Number one, it's allowed for us to have much more leisure time than ever uh, before in the history of humankind across the board, not just for wealthy people, but also uh, for poor people, such that not only do we have more time on any given day, um, for example, we average now about four hours of leisure time a day in the West. By 2040, um, the prediction is that we will have on average seven to eight hours of leisure time a day. That's a tremendous amount of leisure time. Um, we also are living longer than ever before. So, you know, on average, for most of human existence, people died at age 30. Now they're living on average to age 80, 90. So not only do we have more time on any given day, we have more days. And yet we haven't yet figured out what to do with that additional time. The reason for those additional days and additional leisure time is essentially technology, which has created machines that do much of our work for us, um, that efficiently manufacture food more in, than we need in most places of the world today. And also, of course, technology has created the kinds of medical interventions that prevent people from dying young. So technology has allowed for more time. At the same time, technology has allowed for an incredible um innovation in the quantity, access, potency, and novelty of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, um, which makes a big difference when we think about addiction risk, because um, the more of a drug we have access to, and the more potent that drug, the more likely we are to get addicted to that drug. So we've essentially created um, a drugified world um, and we have much more time in which to pursue that in as a leisure activity. And I think the re the result is is clearly, um, you know, has has some serious consequences. If you look at um, sort of le the leading cause of deaths around the world, seventy percent of global deaths today are due to modifiable risk factors, including uh, poor diet, inactivity, and smoking. And finally, you all know Raymond. Arroyo of Fox News and EWTN. He's a prolific journalist and author and has a great take and understanding of what is happening in America today. It really was a pleasure for me to interview him. I will close out my year in review with Raymond Arroyo. You can go back and listen to all our episodes in full. Do subscribe, it's free, and follow us on Twitter and on our YouTube channel, Dig Life Deep. Happy New Year to all our listeners, wherever you are. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Uh, John, the founders of this country, I spend a lot of time, in fact, that, that picture right there in the middle is, is the portrait of Alexander Hamilton there. You can't see him, but he's there. Um, I, and I, I've been a fan of Alexander Hamilton long before the goofy musical came along. Um, you know, I, I just I marveled at his his thought. Here was a man who died in his 30s, who was so brilliant, um, not only in his in his jurisprudence and his, his legal reasoning, but created our economic system in some ways, our banking system in the United States. All at 36, man's dead at 36. So it, it, you have incredible men who came at this particular moment, but beneath this experiment in liberty that they created were two principles, foundations. One, they needed, and it needed, their experiment needed, an informed populace. And the other thing it needed was a moral 
populist. I worry today that we are failing on both counts and the foundations are quaking. You're originally from New Orleans. I am and live there. I'm broadcasting from there now. That's where I'm, I'm greeting you from in my in my office here. Uh, yeah, I born and raised. And, you know, New Orleans is a big part of why I do the things I do. And, and certainly my storytelling and my writing, a lot of that comes from the city that I was uh, born in. And, and of course, it's been an inspiration to writers from Faulkner to Tennessee Williams to, uh, uh, oh goodness, Lillian Hellman to Anne Rice. So there's a long line of uh, authors who've been inspired by this city. Well, I have um, some connections with New Orleans. Really? Um, I have a lot of cousins who live there. And my mm. uncle, Jack Brennan, who came from County Mayo, Wow. Uh, lived, they lived out in Metairie, and I visited often. I plan another visit, I hope, soon with COVID out of the way. Mm. And uh, he, he, he passed away a few years ago, but always spoke highly of New Orleans. So he was an Irish guy in the city. So there is an Irish population there. There is. It's multi-ethnic, really. Yeah, we're not. Look, there are nine cultures here in, in New Orleans that sort of conspired to make the city. And it was the Irish, the English, German, Italian, the French, African-American. Uh, you had the, the, the Cuban, the Italians, uh, Germans. So it was a very odd mix of people, but they all brought something particular. And there's an area of town known as the Irish Channel, where all the Irish sort of collected. And that's where they first settled. And that area, even today, is... Uh, you know, St. Patty's Day, everybody gravitates toward the Irish Channel. They have parades there and all the bars are open. It, it's a it, it's a particular area that retains its cultural flavor. And we have that all over the city. We, we respect our traditions here in New Orleans and those who contributed to the fabric of the city. And, and really, that's part of my telling of this ancient tale, The Spider Who Saved Christmas, my, my picture book. It, it's really... I see it as a continuation and telling a story and passing a tradition on to people, not just something I thought up one afternoon. And, and that's, that too is uh, connected to the city. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699, 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.